Last week, we introduced the first color that went on the palette, the masterpiece that Paul began, and that is the law, the Torah. This week, we look at the second color or theme that's going to be used to paint this beautiful masterpiece of a chapter, and that is the story of the Exodus. Now, the story of the Exodus is a very important story, not only in our understanding of the Bible story, but also in our understanding of the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. It's a very, very important central theme to the Hebrew people as a whole. The story, you'll remember, goes like this. They were in Egypt where they were slaves, and as slaves, they were abused and they were mistreated. They were stripped of all rights and privileges. They were basically used until they were used up. But God, in his providential and sovereign care for them, took them out of that slavery, took them across the wilderness and to a place, a promised land where they would be free. You know, this story of the Exodus, it's so defined and, and um, outlined so much of the culture and heritage and the worldview of the Jewish people that it's almost impossible to think of the Hebrew people today, the modern Jewish culture, without a recognition of the importance of the story of the Exodus. This origin story of God and his care for Israel, his keeping of his promise to Abraham, his love and care for these people, the lengths that he was willing to go to protect them, the word we're going to be using a lot today, to redeem them. You know, it was more than just God caring for his people. It was God facing down a, a powerful empire. It was God facing down demonic powers. It was God against chaos that reigned so that he could free those people from their chains of bondage. And with so much at stake, it really shouldn't surprise us that this story has become such an important part of the Bible narrative. You have, of course, in the Old Testament, the story of this Exodus taking place. We even have a book in the Bible called The Exodus, where much of this storyline is contained. But then we have it picked up over and over throughout the Old Testament writers. Prophets use Exodus language and stories, and they refer back to this event. We, we read in the Psalms, the, the poetry of the Bible so often refers to the Exodus account and how God brings his people out and how God redeems his people from their slavery. We see it picked up in the stories of Jesus and the way that he taught. We see it, it, it once again repeated in the New Testament writers like, for example, Paul, that we're studying today. It's such an important theme, and one that is made up this morning, I'm going to suggest, of at least these three parts. I know some of you are note-takers, so let me, let, me write, let me say these slowly so you can jot these down. When we're talking about the story of the Exodus, there's three major motifs, three major elements to it that are important. The first is the spirit, the second is slavery, and the third is sonship, sonship. Becoming a son. You know, the combination of these three, what we're going to see is the spirit, the slavery, and sonship come together to give us a picture of our word for the day, redemption, and how important it is that we are redeemed. First of all, let's take a look at the spirit. When we talk about the Exodus story, it's very important for us to recognize that, that God shows up by sending his spirit. Why? Because we are lost. Redemption is bringing someone out of a lost state. And God does that through the work of the Spirit. So why are people lost? 
how is it that the people in that day got lost? Well, they were lost because they were separated from their freedom. They had lost their freedom. They were enslaved. They were in chains. They were in bondage. They, they had lost their ability to be free and independent people. But you know what? They also had, they were lost because they made some boneheaded decisions on a very regular basis. The story of the Old Testament people and God's relationship with them is one story of misstep after another, misstep after another, misstep about how they continued to make bad decisions and how that took them farther away from God. A little aside here, this is one of the reasons why I love stories of the Old Testament people, the Hebrew people, because I relate so well to them. Because I too continue to make boneheaded decisions and I'm grateful for a God who continues to suffer with me and love me anyway. The last reason is sometimes they're lost because they literally are lost. They have no sense of direction. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they're going. So it comes down to these three ideas. We're lost because of the hand we're dealt. We're lost because of the decisions we make. Or we're lost because we literally have no sense of direction. We're directionless. We'll look at each one of those a little bit more closely, but you know the reality is that sometimes it is an unfair hand that we're dealt. When you go and you look at the Old Testament Hebrew people, and they were enslaved in Egypt, but it largely wasn't anything they did wrong. The reality was that little boys and girls growing up in that culture grew up in slavery. They were born into it. They didn't make a decision to do it. They hadn't made a mistake. They, hadn't, they, hadn't been, they weren't being punished for something that they themselves did. It was the hand they were dealt. It was just the circumstances of life. And because of it, they experienced lostness. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in a bad hand. We're just dealt a bad hand. And in those times, it's important for us to know the spirit is at work. Secondly, sometimes we see them in, they were lost because of bad decisions, because they continued to make bad decisions. In fact, so many times God will say, this is the direction I want you to go, this is what I want you to do, this is who I want you to be, and they would do anything but. And their decisions continued to be a reason for them to fall away from God. As we already mentioned, I can relate to that, and maybe you can too. Third, Sometimes they're lost because they just literally don't know where to go. They don't have a vision of what the future holds or how they should get there. They leave Egypt, the only place that they've ever known for hundreds of years, generations and generations, and they're going to a promised land, a place where none of them have ever been. And they're crossing a vast wilderness that none of them have ever traveled through. And without God's help, without God's intervention, they are lost. They are directionless. They don't know what to do or where to go. And you know, so oftentimes in life, we find ourselves in those similar kind of situations. We just look up from the situation we're in and we say, I don't know where I'm going and I have no idea how to get there. I'm lost and I need the Spirit to give me direction. The Spirit did give direction. The Spirit did work through bad decisions and the Spirit did work with a, a hand that was dealt poorly to them. Listen to a couple of passages of scripture. Here's the way specifically the Spirit did it in the Old Testament story of the Exodus. Exodus 13. Now the Lord was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from the people. Exodus 13:21. And 22, in the midst of their lostness, God sent his spirit. 
in the midst of their lostness, God sent his spirit. He sent his spirit to give them direction when they had none, he give, to give them hope when they had made bad decisions, and to give them a promise of a better tomorrow when they had been dealt a bad hand. This image was so profound that it's repeated over and over and over in Scripture. And God literally sent the Spirit in a tangible, evidentiary way when he said this. Um, important moments in the history of the Hebrew people are punctuated by the Spirit coming. You may remember that they built a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a fancy word for a, a, temp, a little tent where they would go and worship God while they were wandering through the desert for years and years and years. They had a little tent that they would break down and they would put back together and they would go there and they would worship. And it says when they built this tabernacle, this little tent temple, it says this in Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled it and Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled it. And whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out following them. Same thing happened when they built the temple years later. They built a permanent house of worship. And it talks about how during Solomon's reign, the glory of God came down in the form of this cloud and filled the temple and, and showed his presence. What is he saying? Over and over and over, they're reminding the people of the story of the Exodus. They're reminding the people, you remember where you look when you're lost? Do you remember where you look when you're lost? You look to God because he sends his spirit and his spirit will lead you. And it doesn't matter if you were dealt a bad hand. And it doesn't matter if you got yourself in your own problems because of your mistakes and your bad choices. It doesn't matter that you find yourself completely directionless. The spirit is the answer for leading us out. It's true today. It was true in the days of Jesus. And it was true in the days of the Old Testament. Spirit is the first key. The second key is slavery. If you're going to be on an Exodus journey, you've got to have something that you're getting out of. We're getting out of slavery. What they were literally getting out of was physical bondage. And that's a very major important aspect of this Exodus story, that they were in bondage. They were slaves. But it was more than just that to them. You've got to remember the Hebrew people are a very religious people, a very superstitious people, uh, a very... Um, poetic and expressive people. And you see, for them to not have freedom, for them to not be a nation, for them to not have identity, it meant that they were enslaved, that they were, they were uh, stripped of their freedoms and their rights, but it meant something even greater to them. Because what it said to them was, you know what? Maybe the gods of Egypt are stronger than our God. Maybe our God's not strong enough to protect us, to defend us. Maybe our God's not strong enough to overcome these gods and give us the hopeful promises that he made to Abraham so many years ago. In fact, this theme is picked up in the Old Testament writers. Isaiah says, in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 7, he compares Egypt to an evil, powerful demon. In Ezekiel chapter 29, Ezekiel compares Egypt to a great, huge chaos monster. In Jeremiah chapter 43, um, uh, Jeremiah, he, he refers to Egypt as a place of great de uh, demonic power. And Ezekiel says in 19 that it's the place where all the nations of the world are in, uh, encaptured by the demons. You see, to the Hebrew people, it wasn't only that I didn't have freedom. It was maybe, maybe there's doubts about my God. Maybe there's doubts about his power. 
Maybe there's doubts about what I can, what he can do. And that's why the Exodus account is such an important thing. Because it reminds the Jewish people that their God is the God who redeems. He is the God who tears us out of our slavery and restores us to our freedom. The story of his redemption, the story of his bringing them into freedom is a story of power. No matter what the forces of evil are that may have ensnared you, no matter what kind of challenges you're facing in this life, no matter how desperate they might seem, he can restore it, he can redeem it, and he can return you to your right and proper place. Here's something else that's important to remember. They were completely undeserving of it. I mean the the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. Those people were completely undeserving of God's love. Completely undeserving of God's care and redemptive power in their life. In fact, there's a couple of passages that are almost comical in how they're described. God talks about it. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. Therefore you tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty act of judgment. He goes on to say later, it's not because you were more numerous than the other people. In fact, you were the least of all the people. But it's because of his love for you and his faithfulness to his promise. See, that gives me great hope. Because I'll tell you, I know I'm not worthy. And I know y'all, y'all ain't worthy either. But that's what it says. God says, I didn't come and redeem you because you deserved it. I didn't come and redeem you because you were so great. I came and redeemed you because my love is so great and my promise is unshakable. You know, at a time when the Israelites were struggling to believe that God was going to come and save them, he did. He did literally in the form of their slavery from Egypt, but he did it over and over and over again throughout the pages of the Old Testament. His redemption from slavery wasn't just a one-time event that he did in Egypt. It was something that he continued to do, and they continued to fall back, and then he continued to save them, and they continued to turn away, and he continued to save them, and so and so on it goes. There's a beautiful passage in Zechariah chapter 10 that uses a, a shepherding illustration. It says, God speaking. When I whistle to them, they will come running, for I have redeemed them. That's beautiful. What's he saying? You continue to fall away, and God says, I continue to pursue you. You continue to reject me, and I continue to redeem you. Jeremiah chapter 50, the one who redeems them is strong. His name is the Lord. He's the head of heaven's armies. He will defend them, and he will give them rest again. So many times we see this picture being painted that God is the God who can pull us up out of our slavery regardless of how we got into this slavery or how desperate the situation is. He's the God who redeems. Second, sorry, third, sonship. He leads out of slavery with his spirit. He delivers us from slavery. But this one is particularly special to me because he makes us his sons. He makes us his sons. In in today's culture, we have a picture of adoption. We have an understanding of what adoption is, and it's a very beautiful picture. 
But in their culture, it was rather rare. It was rather uncommon. And it wasn't always everything that we understand adoption to be. Oftentimes, adoption in that culture, in that world, was to bring a, a child into your family as sort of a, a second-class child, a sub-child, a partial child. Better than a servant, better than a slave, someone you were fond of, but they weren't going to be confused with your natural-born children. You see, that's not the picture that God gives us. God gives us a picture that's much more beautiful and powerful than that. And it's a picture that we in our modern world can kind of see and illustrate. For example, let me just tell you, when, um, when the adoption on the boys came final, they, uh, they said, we're going to have to give you new birth certificates. And I had no idea this was a thing. And I was just like, wait, what are, you, what are you talking about? And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll get you new birth certificates. And it is absolutely one of the most touching things. Even to this day, if I open up the safe where all the important papers are, and I see those green tinted papers sitting there, it just brings a tear to my eye. Because... It is as if they were never anything but mine and Susie's. It is as if they were never anything but mine and Susie's. Everything before us is erased. And it says this is how it's always been. Now, there's a sermon in that that you're going to hear one of these days, I'm sure, because it's a beautiful message just waiting to be preached. But that's exactly what it is when it comes to sonship with God. He says, whatever you were and whoever owned you and whoever you belonged to, it's all wiped away. And now, you are mine, and it is as if you've never been anything but his. That's the adoption God says. Here's the second thing that strikes me out of my own family. Adoption, in our world today, we recognize that when those children grow up adopted, they are in every single way, shape, and form part of the family, in every possible way, exactly like any other child in any other family. And it changes not only their world, it changes the perspective, the trajectory of an entire family. Let me just tell you real quickly how it changes in some families. It changes my family. My family hails traditionally from deep south tradition. Rebel flags and the south will rise again. And unfortunately, a whole lot of small-minded prejudices about race. But if Bishop and MJ keep popping out little girls, the entire future of the Darby name is going to be our three little black boys. And you talk about how wildly different future generations are shaped by adoption. How wildly different Future generations are shaped by adoption. You know what? When we're given the opportunity to be adopted as sons of God, multi-generational impact of unprecedented proportions is unleashed from heaven. What an amazing picture that we could be called sons. You know, in our world today, we recognize that a son-daughter by adoption has every inheritance right that a son-daughter has by birth. There's no difference. They are deserving of everything that is ours. The inheritance is given, not necessarily so in those days, but true in our world today. The idea of an adoption in those days, that you would adopt a child and that child would have a place in your inheritance would have been unheard of, let alone if you were very, very wealthy or royalty. How much more so that 
God of the universe calls us his and promises that we can have an inheritance as members of his family. The thought's just mind-boggling. That we could be called sons of God is amazing, but that we could enjoy an inheritance with God, that God would say to us, everything I have is yours, is unbelievable, but it's almost as if God says, even that's not enough. Let me tell you how I'm going to elevate it to even one more level. He says in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, uh, 22, profess this to Pharaoh, God himself declares that Israel is my firstborn son. Now to you and I, that looks, we go, what's the big deal? To them, that was huge. The firstborn son was the one that received the largest inheritance. What's God saying? Not only are these undeserving people, not only are these the smallest people, not only are these fallen people, not only are these worthless people and stubborn and stiff-necked, but I'm going to make them mine. And not only am I going to make them mine, I'm going to make them in the highest possible priority position of my family. That's love. And that's grace. Israel went from lost and enslaved to the full recipient of God's inheritance, honor, and sonship by the process that we call redemption. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture that extends to us. You and I also have been offered that same opportunity of sonship in God's family. Spirit, slavery, sonship. The Exodus story. Now, at this point, somebody's going, um, Romans 8? Were you going to talk about Romans 8 or gave me time today? Yeah, let's talk about Romans 8. Let's bring it back into our text here. We've set the stage a little bit for what the Exodus is, why the Exodus was important, what are three elements of the Exodus that we need to make sure to recognize. Now, looking back at Romans 8, let me show you why. Paul, when he dips his brush into the colors off the palette and he takes that brush and he places them upon that canvas, he creates the second theme in our masterpiece, and he does it so like this. First of all, we recognize that the Spirit is... Spirit is the entity that brings us out of our slavery state. Remember what we said? We get lost for three reasons. It's the hand we're dealt, it's the decision we make, or it's the directionlessness of our life. Look with me. Verse 15 talks about the hand that we are dealt. Romans 8.15 talks about a state of fear. That's the hand we're dealt. You know what, guys? We live in a world where fear is going to be a norm. We're going to be, we're going to be facing constantly the challenges of fear in this world. It's the hand we are dealt. Secondly, decisions we make. In verse 13, it says, live in accordance with the flesh. You know what? From time to time, we all do that. We make bad decisions. We live in accordance with the flesh, not in accordance with the spirit. And those bad decisions are those things that separate us. And God says, I'm sending my spirit to even remove you from the slavery of your own bad decisions. Third, sometimes we just don't even know the way to go. In Romans, 12, Romans 8, 12, it says that living our life in that way, in that course, by that pattern. What's that pattern? What's that course? What's that way? It's the way that just doesn't even know the direction to go in. Isn't it beautiful that these themes from the Exodus account all the way back in the second book of the Bible are being brought back by Paul, and he's saying, look, they were enslaved, you're enslaved. They were enslaved because of the hand they were dealt. You're enslaved because of the situations you're in that you don't have any control over sometimes. They were enslaved because of bad decisions. So are you. 
They were enslaved because they didn't know what to do or where to go. So do you. And what's the answer in all of those? The Spirit. God sends His Spirit to lead us out of our state of slavery. Slavery is the second point. Slavery. Paul tells us that Exodus is all about moving from slavery to freedom. Leaving behind the chains and stepping into God's love and God's grace. In the same way that the people of old stepped out of their chains of Egypt and they walked into the promised land because of God's love and grace. We walk out of our chains, our our slavery to sin. And through the love and grace of God exhibited on the cross by Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to experience slavery in the rearview mirror as something which God has shed us of. Third, sonship. Sonship. Paul wraps up his summary of the Exodus by reminding us that God takes us on as his sons and daughters. He takes us on with all the rights and privileges and honors that should come from being children of God, the children of a king. Paul, in such a masterful and wonderful way, takes these old, old stories and the themes that come from them and brings them forward, showing us how Jesus fulfills each and every one of them. Jesus is our answer. Jesus is our source of exodus. It is through the spirit God sends that removes us from the slavery that we endured so that we can be sons and daughters of him. Let me finish with a story. Telfani was the name his parents gave him. But outside of his family and a few fellow slaves on the plantation, he was known by everybody else as Sammy. Calfani's mom was given a week away from her duties as a house slave by her mistress, Mrs. Lawrence, when Calfani was born. She thought this was a very noble thing because that was a larger concession of time than normally would have been customary for a mother, especially one that had older children who could take charge of the child so that the mother could go back to work. Calfani struggled from a young age. He never seemed to be able to accept his place in this world. His mother and father warned him about his impetuous belief that he should be free, that he should have choice, that he should do as he pleased. They tried to explain to him that the Lawrence family owned them and they could do with them anything they pleased. But the more they tried to explain it, the more it just seemed to stiffen his resolve to push back and rebel. His parents tried their best to keep him out of trouble. They tried to explain his back talk as, it's just youthful indiscretion. His angry demeanor was, well, he probably ate something that upset his tummy. But try as they might, they could not convince little Kay to just go along. As he got older, his rebellion grew, and with it grew the number of scars that he wore across his muscular back from the whip he bore. After a particularly bad beating that was precipitated by yet another insult, not whispered quite low enough to not be overheard by the foreman, Kay had enough. And that night, he took his revenge out by stealing a hatchet and going to town on the yoke of a plow. It didn't take long for them to discover who had done the damage. 
The foreman grabbed him up to take him once again to the whipping post, and Mr. Lawrence stepped in and said, I'm done with him. I'm done with him. No more. To the auction block he goes. Kay was a strong man, a young man. He could get a good price. But here, Mr. Lawrence put a caveat to the foreman and said, but wait, whoever pays for him not only has to pay for him, but needs to pay for the price of my plow. That was an expensive implement. And they're going to pay for the damages that he's done as well. He was ushered onto the platform, not too gently. And while the auctioneer cleared his throat to begin the bidding, a voice from the audience cried out, $1,500! The auctioneer had not even said a word yet. And he said, wait, before we begin the bidding, you need to know, this boy comes with a $1,000 penalty, a history of rebellion, a history of insubordination, a history of dishonesty. I'll raise it to $3,000, the voice cried, and I'll pay the penalty on top of that. Stunned, the auctioneer stepped out of character and simply asked the man, what purpose could you possibly have for this boy to offer such a price? My goal is to free him, the man said among the gasps and shock of the crowd. Not only will I free him, I will adopt him, and I will make him the heir of my vast fortune. And in stunned silence, the crowd watched as the man walked up to the cashier, doled out the cash, put an arm around the dumbfounded boy in chains, and turned them both resolutely towards his waiting coach and a new life. I am Calphine. You are Calphine. We are guilty guilty of rebellion and insubordination and general fussiness. Yet, when we were dragged to the auction block, a voice called out of the crowd and said, I'll pay. I'll pay their price and I'll even pay the penalty of what they owe. I'll pay it all. And I'll pay them and I'll free them. And I'll make them my child. And I'll give them everything I own. And for that, I'll pay the ultimate price of my own son's blood. That's what makes the good news the good news. And that is the good news. That Jesus died for all the Kalfanis in the world. Me and you and everyone else that has lived, ever was, ever has lived, or ever will. He died so that anyone who will name him Lord, repent of their sins, and put him on in baptism can come to know what it's like to have the Spirit lead us out of slavery and into sonship, a new relationship, a relationship in Jesus Christ. And this morning, that's the invitation that we're so excited to share with the world. And this morning, if that's an invitation that you need to respond to, or if we can help with anything, we want you to know our leaders stand right here in the back of this room, and we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you in any way we can. Won't you make that known while we stand and sing?